Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're talking about Excalibur 45, Nightcrawler's TechNet, in which Kurt learns a thing or two about leadership, Brian learns a thing or two about Otherworld, and Rachel and Megan learn a thing or two about each other and themselves. Excalibur number 45 was originally published in December 1991, and the creative team is Alan Davis on writing and pencils, Mark Farmer on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Michael Heisler on letters, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. But on this Easter day, when Christ rose from the dead, may one night here through victory in arms find the grace to draw the sword and be king. The Alan Davis era of Excalibur continues to chug along on its merry way and us right along with it, but who are we? I can only speak for myself, but I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write and talk about comics and pop culture and gender and sexuality and a lot of X-Men these days, and especially a lot of Nightcrawler, whom I represent public relations-wise in a decidedly unofficial capacity. I am very excited to talk about this week's issue, which is delightful, with a delightful returning guest and my two always delightful co-hosts, the first of whom is... Mav, if you'd like to reintroduce yourself to your fans. Hello, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I would like to refer to all of you from here on out as my M-men. Like, no good reason. I've just decided to just, you know, rechristen you all. You, you'll all get neat little outfits, I think, that are just, you know, dressing like me all the time. Um, why not? That, that seems like a thing that I can do. Um, now, the secret is, the, re- the way I'm going to get away with it is we're never going to mention that. I'm going to call you that. I'm going to put up a poster where I call you all the M-men, but then never in context will I ever say that name out loud. I don't expect you to ever say it, and I don't expect anyone to ever acknowledge it, but that's who you are now. <laughs> and stop me. <laughs> um, also, yeah, you know, I, if you've heard the show before, I do. Actually, I was going to say, if you've heard the show before, you know, I do cultural study stuff, but I just thought about it. I don't remember the last time that I gave a straight intro. I usually make some dumb joke. So, like, probably if you go back to, like, episode, like, three of this show, you'll learn what I actually do, which is I, you know, <laughs> write about culture and gender and sexuality and race and class. Not in that order, but in 20th century and 21st century pop culture, particularly movies and comics and TV shows and professional wrestling, and things like that. You can hear me talk about that here and on another show called Vox Popcast. And in your past, by about a week when you listen to this but you know in very recently for us on on the claremont run which speaking of <laughs> segue <laughs> thank you i worked really hard on that <laughs> now 
elegant segue to Andrew, who should be reminding our listeners of the fabulous things he gets up to. Hey, I'm Dr. J. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. John's University and the project lead for the Claremont Run Research Project, which sometimes has awesome ideas on it about Iron Fist that Mav wrote. Personally speaking, if I ever set off on a pilgrimage of self-discovery to reconnect with my past, it would more or less just take me to the old video game consoles in my crawlspace. I'd still try to find a way to save Aerith, though. Maybe I just need to breed the Chocobos harder. It's <laughs> delightful, Andrew. Uh, we are joined this week by a scholar and friend of the pod who we last saw during the fires of Inferno. The pod is ecstatic to welcome back Matt Linton. Hello again, Matt. Hello, everybody. I, I will that remind our... <laughs> that is okay, because we're going to talk to you a lot more. Um, I'm going to remind our listeners a little bit about you, Matt, since it's been a while since we saw you. So Matt Linton is pursuing a PhD in film and media studies at Wayne State University. His primary interests are constructions and depictions of race in comics and films, biopolitics, and visual narratives. He has previously presented at Narrative UF Conference on Comics and Graphic Novels, the Comics Studies Society Conference, and the Mid-Atlantic Popular Culture Association Conference. His chapter, Blood and Fire, Monstrous Women in Carrie and the Dark Phoenix Saga was published in Gender and Contemporary Horror and Comics, Games, and Transmedia back in 2019. He is also the president and co-founder of the Wayne State Comics Collective. So now, Matt, obviously you've joined us before, so I'm not going to make you do your comics origin story again. Listeners who want to check that out are very much encouraged to do so if they haven't already. Matt joined us back for our episode on Excalibur number seven. But I would love to spend a little bit of time off the top catching up with you. Since you were last on the pod, we've come through the Claremont era. We've survived the Lobdell era, scarred, but we've survived. We've arrived at the Davis era, and I know you've been V1. listening a lot with Lobdell the pod. V1.0. Lobdell era V1.0. I know, I know. <laughs> and I know that you've been reading along, too. So I was wondering if you had any reflections on the journey. You know, how are you feeling about where we've arrived? Um, I do have reflections. I put together like the points that I remember. There are a decent amount of issues that are forgettable. And <laughs> I would say fair. like forgettable if you're fortunate um, enough to yeah. forget them. <laughs> um, but so kind of the high points for me, the cross time caper, I enjoyed more reading it more this time around than I did when it was coming out because when it was coming out, it felt just interminably long and it was like a month between issues. And I'm just like, how is this still going? And I don't understand it. This time it was better, but it's, I still feel like it just sort of, it didn't really end it just stopped which is weird girl school from heck is probably my favorite of the non-davis issues of excalibur and honestly especially after like listening to your episodes on the girl school from heck which just enhanced it also you know as you might remember i'm a massive kitty pride fanboy so that was absolutely perfect and then love doll love doll's a thing um <laughs> and honestly my first thought is it makes me dread the idea of revisiting generation x because i remember loving generation x mm. and i'm afraid that if i revisit it it's not going to be as good as i remember and i think the biggest issue with love Dole is that like excalibur is just this it's a weird book like even at its best it's a weird book it's like humor and pathos like sometimes simultaneously it's a hard balance for writers to do when they're trying to do that and i don't think love Dole just really understood or cared about that brief um he just viewed it as like yeah it's an x book with these random characters i'm just going to tell some stories with what i think these characters are and the closest similarity i can think of which is not entirely fair is like the giffen dimitase mcguire justice league which kind of started out the same way as excalibur of like it's funny but it's also like it has depth and seriousness yeah. and then it sort of lost that as it went along the way the difference there is that it lost that 
even with the same creators and it just leaned hard into like the comedy and then davis returning like i just i have no words for when davis returned like when i was reading those issues and getting through the slog of like lovedell and then i read the first davis issue back i was just like oh my god okay yeah this is this is this is what i was missing like all of this so that's kind of my like reflection from inferno on yeah that pretty much lines up with a lot of the experiences that we've gone through i remember recording that episode on excalibur 42 the davis the issue where davis comes back and god we were so excited <laughs> yeah. like it was like we got to actually talk about giddy. the issue <laughs> we were giddy i'm almost there i'm actually like i got a little behind on my listening but i I think the next episode I have is the last Love Doll issue. That's the most recent one that I still have to get through. So I, I will treat it the same way as the Love Doll run of comics, which is I will look forward to the episode after that and sharing the joy with you. <laughs> Well, we certainly hope so. You just mentioned, you know, Generation X, and I don't know that I remembered until you said so that Lobdell had created Generation X. I know, and I, know. I haven't read it in a long time either. And I like that book. I've always liked that book. I've now I you're doing you're making me do the same thing. Do I want to go back and revisit this? I don't know. I think Maybe it's going to be one of those like how much of this is Chris Piccolo and how much is Lobdell, and the I mean the obvious answer is like it's probably ninety percent Chris Piccolo. Well, uh, Lobdell has stories that i think are better than others i mean when we were talking about him i tried to talk about i tried to be fair and say this is some of the better stuff and i think that generation x has the benefit that but for jubilee he doesn't have to live up to anybody else's storyline right and so so i i really should go back and revisit that i know there were parts that i didn't like back then like it was messy and i didn't like that but uh but there was a lot that i thought at the time was really nice so that's something else listeners if you can you know let us know do you, do you like generation x and should we oh, read it? People love Generation X, and they're gonna start recommending that we make that our next podcast, Mav. If you open the door on that, sure. You know, give <laughs> us money and uh, g- give us money in like in a hundred and oh no, only eighty three episodes. We'll go and do that. <laughs> I feel like Generation sure. X has like a similar kind of cult following of people yeah. who are desperate to talk about it. So actually, it's very similar to Excalibur in that sense. That's when you do your you start your Patreon like now and just mm-hmm. say like mm-hmm. we'll do a Patreon. <laughs> episode on and do those will all be going through generation x alongside our excalibur issues you can pay I for mean, those if you really want them people wanted to pay us enough to do it i mean like i'm all, my, myself i'm you know andrew you mentioned it i, I kind of want to do you know the entire series run of power man and iron fist first <laughs> and iron fist is really good guys <laughs> so well, people want us to do a new mutants one and it's just there's just not enough time in the day for all these podcasts that people demand again we don't ask a lot One hundred fifty thousand american each and <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, like, I'm still subtly trying to get Anna to do a Daredevil podcast. Yeah, to an including like I'm rereading the entire Daredevil run right now and was chat- chatting with her about it oh, earlier or yesterday. Gene Cole, Gene Cole and Daredevil, we need to make it happen. I want to talk about that somewhere. <laughs> but I, I started with issue one and I've never read past Stan Lee's run. I like mm. well, I've read past Stan Lee's run, but I never read anything really between Stan Lee and Frank Miller. Frank Miller, yeah. And I'm reading like the Gene Colan stuff and it's so much longer than I thought it was. And, <laughs> and but it's also so good. And I think I mentioned to Anna, it was like not knowing about this is kind of like if no one ever mentioned that John Romita Sr. drew Amazing Spider-Man. And you're just like somehow forgot that. And it's like never talked about because Gene colon is so definitive on this book at this point for me and i'm just like how did i not know this was a thing oh yeah because there's sort of a cultural memory of daredevil that there weren't any good daredevil stories until frank miller and i'm like that's total bullshit because there definitely 
they were. Daredevil didn't exist until, yeah, until the Kingpin War and Electra. That's like the, it's the way people view it. You know, there are a lot of blind spots in comic that are based on recency bias. And even though the Frank Miller era isn't, it's not that recent anymore, but there, you know, there was life before that. I still just want to talk about Gene Colan's Daredevil and how Black Widow (laughs) in that run is one of my top three style icons of all time. Definitely just want to wear that black cat suit with the enormous trench coat every day of my life. I'd be completely happy. Um, She gets rejected from a fashion design job in an issue where I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) She has the perfect outfit. Who doesn't want to wear all black cat suit with an enormous trench coat? It's great. It's just the perfect outfit. Let's talk about Excalibur uh, and get back on track here. (laughs) So let's start with the issue summary and then we'll get into this issue because this is a great issue. We got a lot of stuff to talk about. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd gladly defend your honor in Otherworld. But as always, let's start our team building with a plot summary. Excalibur number 45 opens in the major Mainwaring Museum in Wilmington-on-the-Sea, where Nightcrawler and the Technet are hiding in the shadows and trying to be quiet as they wait for an ancient artifact to be stolen, a tip they picked up from clairvoyant and velvet fur enthusiast Miss Amelia Witherspoon. As the ancient chalice lifts from its display case, Kurt and the Technet leap into action, but it's just Micromax, who accuses Kurt and the Technet of ruining his stakeout. Thankfully, Di Thomas arrives and tells Micromax to get lost, but then, not so thankfully, Brigadier Inky Blood of F-16 arrives, ordering Die to leave. Amid heated arguments about jurisdiction, Kurt and the Technet sneakily sneak away. Meanwhile, on Otherworld, Brian Braddock and Captain UK, aka Linda McQuillan, are fighting the assembled members of the Captain Britain Corps who are trying to take Brian back into custody. Suddenly, a trumpet blares. It's Omniversal Majestrix Opal Luna Saturnine delivering a pardon for Brian via Roma. Brian tries to thank her, but Saturnine doesn't give him the time of day. But this facilitates some important bonding between Brian and Linda, who tells him about the Britain-based energy matrix that grants the Captain Britain Corps their powers, something Brian would know if he'd attended basic training. As he and Linda wander through Otherworld, Brian sees a replica of Excalibur's original lighthouse. Linda explains that it was built by Merlin and extends across the multiverse. Back in the 616 lighthouse, Miss Witherspoon announces another robbery will take place in four days' time while the Technet fight in the background. With the rest of Excalibur still off doing other things, Kurt's got no choice but to try and whip the Technet into shape. Perhaps a sense of group identity might help. Elsewhere in the 616, specifically France's Roan Valley, Megan and Rachel are still road-tripping in search of Megan's parents. A tired Megan asks Rachel why they can't fly, to which Rachel says they need to stay undercover. Megan doesn't buy it, and demands a better answer. Rachel reveals that when she forced the Phoenix Force to be dormant at the Scots house, her memories started to return. She's keeping it turned off in an effort to keep rebuilding her past. Megan, characteristically, forgives her. Back in Birmingham, Micromax gets his size-changing bot handed to him again, but Kurt and the Technet, now known as the N-Men, are here to save the day, using their combined powers to defeat a demonic monster that emerges from a collection of druidic artifacts. Finally, on Earth, Kylan and Princess Satnine confront Necrom, who unleashes upon them demonized versions of that dimension's Excalibur. We will be returning to that in our next issue, but for now, let's dive into this one, starting with some first impressions, and guest privilege will come to you with it first, Matt. Things that stood out to you about this issue that you're particularly eager to talk about? I mean, the first thing that stood out after I read it, because uh, like, I read the issue, and then I like loved it, and then I was thinking about it story-wise, and I was like, it's a lot of middle. 
it's the middle of stories kind of for all of the characters. But despite that, it actually works as a story on its own because it has like sort of two significant themes that are going on. One is the idea of like belonging, the sort of like the group identity thing that, you know, they're very overt about. Overt about. I feel like there's also this theme of like paternalism that's kind of touched on a little bit less, but does make its way into like each of the three stories that are going on that I think is Ooh, interesting. I love that. I love that. Um, I want to revisit that. Yeah. Um, in terms of the characters, and this again might be a reflection of coming off of Lovedell, but like Davis so obviously 100% understands the characters to the extent that even if you feel like they are kind of acting differently than you would be used to or expect, you know it's deliberate and it's still coming from a place of who they are that I really liked. Davis as a writer and artist, and this might be a little controversial, feels less on autopilot to me than he did in the Claremont run. And I don't mean that as pejorative because his autopilot is just ridiculous. <laughs> um, but I think there's just there's these like specific like visual storytelling details that are going on throughout the issue that reflect on those themes that I feel like he does because he knows exactly why he's doing them and he knows that he can kind of weave it into the story in a way that is maybe less able like you would be less able to do if you're relying on another writer no matter how well you sort of collaborate with them um, so those are kind of my like big takeaways Oh, that makes so much sense to me, Matt, in terms of my thinking about Davis's Nightcrawler versus Claremont's, which I, I see a consistency between their versions of the character, but I just, well, we're doing a tweet somewhere about this issue, so I've looked at sort of specific panels of this <laughs> issue very carefully setting that, painstakingly setting that up, but it's going to be awesome. It's totally worth it. Um, But just so many scenes of Nightcrawler here just sort of posing amid chaos and like the way that his story is told through his body posture and stuff in so many of these, in these panels and thinking about how much that it's reflective of how I think about the character and there's just a lot more sort of space for that in Davis's stories than there were in some of Claremont's stories which were amazing you know obviously I love the Claremont and Davis run but the density of that and how much they were always sort of barreling to the next thing sometimes didn't give us actually enough of those quiet moments surprisingly and I think that we've been getting them more in this kind of this long arc of Davis's in ways that I'm really appreciating even as though we've talked about some of the I don't want to say deficiencies because that's too strong a word, but some of the limitations of Davis as a writer, because in some of the previous episodes, we've been talking about him actually telling instead of showing and not sort of relying on mm -hmm. his artistic gifts sort of as completely as he could. So there's different things going on there and sort of different advantages and, and disadvantages of his style in some of these issues. But I, I really loved your observations about it, Matt. Um, other first impressions from Andrew and Matt before we get into some, some more specifics, because I want to unpack all of those things more. You called it not on autopilot. I feel like this issue feels a little autopilot-y because it's all middle, like you said. But what exactly what you said, his autopilot is so good. Like, it actually is written, I think. There were so many fill-in issues of Excalibur early on that we would call autopilot or just kind of getting the job done or just like, you know, there were a lot of, who can pencil this this week? Remember when we had that era? <laughs> and <laughs> this isn't that. Like, this is deliberate. So it's not that it's on autopilot. It's that it is all just building blocks. This is a lot of middle of story. This is a lot of, here's an incident that will build to something else. You know, what's going on with Brian in Otherworld? I'm not really going to tell you here, but, you know, we're going to give you enough to make you come back and learn more in issue 46. You know, <laughs> like there's a lot of that happening. Well, and I think one thing he does is, you know, he's not just moving the pieces around the board. I mean, tech, on one level, he's moving the pieces around the board, but at the same time, he's 
giving you like character and themes while that happens which i think you don't get as much in like the villain issues before where it literally was just like this character goes here to do this thing because i need them to go here and do this thing and it doesn't inform their character it doesn't come (laughs) from their character it doesn't mean anything davis knows he's going to be here a while so he's okay with like i can just sort of like build the story that i'm building and also remember that people are reading every issue and i should be giving them something even if this is like a more sort of plot mechanic driven issue yeah i think there's actually kind of a specific project in play in this issue and that's that's rebuilding brian braddock i think the the confrontation with nightcrawler signaled the end of the claremont iteration the second claremont iteration of brian and i think davis wanted to put an end to that and wanted to bring brian back into a protagonist role into a sympathetic role um and we see like like everything that's going on in other worlds here all the contrivances all the characters all the beats all the tonal shifts they're all about re-establishing brian as someone you could actually look up to so a character you could identify with not just the guy who takes the pratfalls right and we'll see that continue into the next couple of issues um but but like the dynamic with saturnine um his relationship with linda and the heroism and that kind of um giving him contact heroism i guess we would call it because linda is is the greatest <laughs> captain britain yeah he's doing a lot of work here i, I think on brian's character I, for me that's really what this issue is about he, not to steal the spotlight from kurt but i see <laughs> i see this as maybe the most important issue in the history of like like brian braddock other than like captain britain one uh and maybe sword is drawn um this this is a radical redefinition of brian that i think we're seeing in this issue i was gonna say can i also add the one other first impression that i forgot um of course which is despite the fact that this issue doesn't have kitty or lockheed in it which is criminal this is one <laughs> of my favorite issues of excalibur and i don't like it's a testament to davis that like that's the case despite like literally taking my two favorite characters in the book out of the book and not showing them at all i sort of forgot about that when i was reading the issue and i was like oh yeah kitty's actually not in this she's off on that archaeological dig and we don't actually touch base with her this is a a brian story i mean even kitty's not in it kurt is leading a team but it's it's very it's not this is not an emotional development story for for kurt it's not a character development story oh, it's a beg to differ mav beg to oh, differ. well uh, well let's see we'll see because my point is it's a tech net development story where kurt proves that he can lead any team but i don't think anything changed for him i think this is oh. a business as usual for kurt story and you might disagree but <laughs> which I'm, i'll be curious about <laughs> no i'll be curious about that but like i don't think it's i don't think kurt changes here i i don't think this is a kurt story i think brian has development and i think rachel and megan are both moving towards a place where we're going to see more but like this is not their big moment i, I i'm curious why you disagree so much cuz i i don't see this as a spotlight on kurt issue i agree to an extent like what i was going to say about andrew's observation was that I was debating with is this a Brian issue or is this a Kurt issue and I wasn't really (laughs) sure whether I was just seeing it through Nightcrawler goggles and perceiving it as a Nightcrawler issue which is admittedly entirely possible but for me this is a super super crucial 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 Nightcrawler issue yes (laughs) okay I expected you to say that about the one before this and the next one. (laughs) I mean, I tend to to agree with Anna, not to pile on, but I think the distinction I would probably make, or I guess like how I would thread the needle is it has a super crucial Nightcrawler scene um, to his character, whereas the Brian stuff is sort of more the bulk of the story of the issue that's also crucial for him. So like, I think quantity wise, it's probably definitely like more of a Brian story and in terms of impact on the character. But I think in terms of like, 
like creating an understanding of who Nightcrawler is or a, new, a different way of looking at him. I think that's like, there's a particular scene that I know we're probably going to talk about later that is kind of like absolutely fundamental to how to think about the character. Hmm, okay. Yes, that's what I would agree with Matt. Like the, we're going to talk about it, but the mascot yeah, scene sure. is like definitely <laughs> yes. like a, to- it's a top 10 Nightcrawler scene for me. So, and I know that a lot of fans feel similarly, but um, well, let's get into that because I want to talk about, I'm leading off the podcast with Kurt this week. I sometimes leave it to the end let's do it at the top um but i wanted to talk about sort of his character evolution and link it back to some of the leadership stint that he had in uncanny and i know that andrew you've done work on that on the claremont run talking about that stint back in the so this was like toward the end of nightcrawler's time in uncanny before he gets gravely wounded in the mutant massacre he had become Mm -hmm. the leader of the team and it is disastrous (laughs) (laughs) painful to read as a nightcrawler fan not in like a stanish way but like in a sense that he is suffering way and i was wondering if you could just walk us through it andrew in terms of some of your analysis of that because i think that that's really important to understanding why the scene in this issue is so important for so many nightcrawler fans yeah i think the scene in question like as anna mentioned it really is harrowing to read and i kind of love it as a tragedy in that sense um, but basically storm and cyclops are both gone at this point um storm's going on her pilgrimage uh and um, wolverine doesn't want to be leader kitty's too young to be leader so rogue can't be trusted at this point so it's just like <laughs> he, he just defaults into it and he, he he's up for it he's this long-standing member he's got an emotional intelligence um but he, he really spirals he, he kind of panics and he compares himself to scott and storm a little bit too much um and it's like watching a panic attack Uh, it's really hard and this is a time when they were really cultivating Kurt as this sort of um, character in existential crisis so having him fail as a leader makes sense in that context Um, so so coming back to it in this issue and having him succeed is a really like heartful moment for the character because it signals that it's not that he was just a bad leader although Claremont kind of implies that that's exactly what it was Um, but for for Davis's interpretation it was just the wrong time a bad situation unfair circumstance Um, so it's a moment of like um, peace for Kurt um, that I think is really you know heartwarming after again watching the, this horrible issue unfold around him yeah agreed but don't you feel as though he's already had that redemption in the past i don't know 44 months of stories like I up do, until here but we haven't had him directly reflecting on it in the same way that he does in this particular issue and okay. the particular way that he reflects on it i think is really important in terms of the ways that i read his leadership stint failing the first time like i read it failing in the sense that kurt is so invested in being liked by people and that makes him a bad leader in that original stint on uncanny you know we see again and again this pattern with him in that stint as leader where he basically tries to get himself killed for the team multiple times because the only way that he can sort of imagine helping people is through self-sacrifice and through sort of you know putting his own needs second and sort of being everybody's friend and like being that kind of guy and you can't always be that kind of guy as a leader you know exactly what it's like it's like the experience of when you're first teaching and you're the teacher's assistant and everybody loves you and then you become the prof and you're doing exactly the same thing but the students have a totally different relationship to you and now suddenly you're the mean old prof and you don't have that (laughs) sort of chummy relationship with them that you used to have that's like the difference between being a member of the x-men and becoming the leader of the (laughs) x-men and i think the person that kurt was then and in some senses the person that he is inherently just because of how much like the desire to be liked is fundamental to his character and fundamental to the ways that he survives as this graphically different character who needs to be smiling all the time just so that people don't try to kill him like that makes him a bad leader and i think that that's what makes his leadership failure so painful 
painful because he's failing for such identifiable reasons. He's not failing because he's a bad person, because he's not brave enough, because he doesn't have the ability to do these things, because he's not smart enough, because he doesn't have strategy. Those aren't the reasons he's failing. He's failing for deeply human reasons of having to step into this role is just bringing up so many of his insecurities and he can't deal with it. And that's why it's like a panic attack. It's like he just actually can't deal with this situation. And that's why I love that original leadership stint, because I think it's really on the mark in terms of character, but God, just intensely, intensely painful to me for me to read as somebody who identifies with the character. Like I've actually reread it not very many times because I do find it intensely actually painful to read. And so some of the reflection that he has here about being that happy-go-lucky character and being perceived by people like that is deeply, deeply resonant to me with how I read that original situation. That's part of why this scene and this issue is very meaningful to me. But I actually want to come to Matt about it because I know that you had thoughts about it, Matt, because you were saying that you also think the scene in this issue is really important. So let's talk about the scene in particular. So we're talking about the scene in this issue where Kurt reflects on that past experience. And I'll just like read some of the dialogue because I think it really kind of matters quite a bit. And I want to make sure that we're being kind of specific about it. So on the bottom of page 14, we have Kurt saying, I always let the stronger members take the lead, content to be part of the team, cheerful and optimistic, like a mascot. And then I think the next panel is just one of the most painful panels that Nightcrawler has ever been featured in in his entire history. Does Lord know, could that be how the others saw me? Is that why they left me behind? And then we see him flip and say like, it's not the time for doubt and self-pity. I'm gonna, you know, take charge of this and everything. And he very much switches over into being the happy-go-lucky character again. But the fact that he has that moment of doubt and that kind of self-consciousness about his own performance of happy-go-luckiness and the fear that other people saw him that way in a way that dehumanized him, that's just so on the money. Like, it's just like a perfect, perfect scene for me. But anyway, I said that I was going to let you talk about it, Matt, and then I just completely <laughs> talked about it because I was too excited. So, like, how do you read this scene, Matt? Like, why do you think this scene is important? Yeah, I think there's a couple things that jumped out at me and that I that even I reflected on it and started thinking about, like, Kurt as a character sort of differently. One is that it is reflecting not just on, like, his leadership, but on his place in the X-Men. And there's this indication, like, I sort of saw this indication of no matter how much you might belong to a group or, you know, feel like you're part of a group, if you feel like maybe you were brought in or that they allowed you to be in the group, there can be this like nagging voice that is telling you that you're only there because you're allowed to be and that you serve a purpose for the real members. And I kind of thought of that too, when you were talking about like, he keeps trying to sort of like basically get himself killed for the team. And it's that thing of like, well, yeah, cause he has this, maybe this insecurity, this nagging voice that is telling him like, no, I'm here for them. Like that's why they let me be here. So I need to be what they need me to be. And there's a couple of things I think about that some of it is kind of good I think we're gonna get into a little bit later when we talk or I can talk about it now with like the idea of him being racialized but the other thing is with Kurt and the tech net he is sort of the inarguable leader of this team but it's different than with the x-men because with the x-men he's the like he's the one who is visually distinct from everyone else. Like yeah. everyone else, when he comes into the team can pass, he can't. And so there is, there has to be this sort of constant awareness on his part of that. With the tech net, they all look like him in like in that they all look different. They all are non-normative. Um, so he doesn't have that. So he has this kind of weird thing of like, it's belonging to this group, but also belonging in a sense of unambiguous authority. Whereas like where he doesn't have to sort of perform for them. And the second one that I think is important is the line that you talked about. And specifically that when he says, you know, could that be how the others saw me? Is that why they left me behind? He dismisses it. 
but he doesn't deny it. Yeah. He says, like, no, this is not the time for doubt and self-pity. So he's not necessarily saying, like, well, no, of course they didn't think that. He's just saying, like, this isn't the time for me to, like, wallow in this. And I think it kind of gets to this idea of, like, how much of his identity or how much of just, you know, your identity within a group is informed both individually and as part of that group by others and how others perceive you or how you believe others perceive you. And it gets to, it's almost like the dark side of his empathy. Like, he's a very empathetic, caring character, you know, and that's what allows him to sort of be what people around him need him to be. But at the same time, he's reflecting on possibly like the downside of that is like he's he's putting all of his needs behind everyone else's. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we could argue he's kind of in that sense sort of a metaphorical Megan, right, an empathic metamorph. Yeah, that's the, and I think that's the that's the connection between the characters in some ways, like, yeah. and especially if you were going to ship them to some extent, it is the sort of like the visual visual difference. But I, I know you've talked about in the past that like you know Megan is a shapeshifter, so there's that appeal too of you know she can pass when she wants to but i think even more so is the fact that they are both like empathic to certain degrees and probably and you know probably even to each other and maybe that's what sort of draws them to each other is they're both trying to be sort of what the other what they believe the other person needs them to be at the same time which is you know probably not the basis a great basis for a relationship or maybe a healthy basis for a relationship i'm not really (laughs) sure codependency yay yeah Yeah, Yeah, I I won't necessarily weigh in on that, but I love where you're going with it, Matt, in terms of him always, in a sense, being sort of on thin ice with the rest of the X-Men. And he does like have a lot of pressure put on him because he's the one that can't pass. And there's so much more pressure put on him to be, you know, there's a lot of respectability politics placed on this character because of that. He has to be the soul of the X-Men. He has to represent diversity properly because of the role that he's put into. And again, that relates back to the ways that we could, I think, read this character as racialized regardless of whether the stories are actively trying to do that or not because we've talked about that in the past that they've done that quite messily when they have attempted to do that but it certainly resonates with some of those themes that he feels like he's worried he's a diversity hire and he doesn't know that he can really prove his worth unless he knows that he isn't that and yeah, I don't know. I The mask outline is really interesting in that context. The struggle there, and this is why I don't think it's... A, so I agree with like everything that Anna and Matt have said. The reason I don't think it's a good Kurt issue is because everything that you guys are talking about is packed into four panels, and really three of them, you know, of really intense, a lot going on, but it's basically just on that one page. I don't... I think most of the growth actually happens in other books, and this is, if anything, it's his acknowledgement of it. And then... As as soon as he starts to get for me where he starts to get interesting about it he says nope no time for that have to go do a mission you know like if it's not evident from other from other episodes i'm the guy who reads superhero comics and my least favorite part is all the superheroing like i would (laughs) you know i've I've said before my favorite issue my favorite episode of all of the netflix daredevil defender iron fist like like my favorite episode of all of them is the one where they all hang out and have dinner at the Chinese restaurant. That's classic superheroing for me. It's yeah, a, I just yeah, want to yeah. see the talk. And I feel like his development is stunted here because he's got the important mission. If he had dwelled on the mascot thing or uh, Anna, you just called it. Actually, you've both said it. You both said it. If he dwells on the fact that he's a diversity hire in quotes and like, what does that mean? That's interesting to me. And he doesn't get a chance to do that enough because frankly, he kind of is the X-Men diversity hire without Kurt during that era of the team. It's really, really hard to say, well, you know, everybody fears us because they because mutants could be anybody and 
you know, they and they don't like us. And I'm like, yeah, but none of you look like anything except for white people, except Storm, who looks like a black person who's a supermodel. Like it, it was hard to buy into. Kurt made that viable because he looks like a demon. Yeah, for sure. And that's why he's the first character introduced in Giant Size X-Men number one right. and his very first panel in on the first page of Giant Size X-Men number one in 1975 is like, monster, is it? They're the ones who are the monsters, them with their mindless right. prejudices. That is his first dialogue ever. Mm-hmm. If he talks about that more, then I feel more of it here. I just, and I, and I don't want to complain about Davis here. It's not a, it's not a cut. This is a very packed issue. We're going to get that. We're going to get Kurt, a lot of Kurt, you know, dwelling with who he is. Last issue, I talked about the fact that there was the very racialized, let me touch your fur moment, which, you know, I have feelings about, and I felt like it was done too quickly. I feel like the same thing happens here, where it's just like, yeah, you know, let's let's get in, you know, less punching and let's get into that. I, ag- <laughs> I agree with you, but like the character-based reading of it would be that it actually isn't characteristic for Kurt to spend a lot of time being self-reflective. Yes. Like That's as much fair. as he's a very empathetic character, I think it's Not very believable on a, yeah, I believe it's very believable on a character level that he would have one moment of like, is that what was going on? I can't think about that right now. I just have to keep moving. Fair enough. Yes. Well, and for me, it, it serves as almost like this trigger of like, despite the fact that he's saying like, oh, I can't dwell on that right now. It almost forces at least me as a reader to then dwell on it. Yeah, I know, like, yeah. You know, I, I honestly, I think outside of like the whole, like the mutant metaphor and how complicated that is, I don't think I ever really thought about Kurt in racialized terms. And part of that might be that like when he's not looking like, you know, his normal self, I think he always exclusively presents as white, Um, whether he's using an image inducer, whether he's like transformed, it's an alternate version. And that's contrasted with like, you know, Megan, there's the issue right after Inferno. And I think maybe Monica talked about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The, that Megan is completely comfortable, however problematic this is, you know, changing her shape to look Asian, to look black. Kurt doesn't do that. Like Kurt kind of weirdly exists and is presented as a white man who just happens to have blue fur. So I didn't never thought of him in racialized terms until he started talking about, you know, being a mascot mascot and thinking about it. And I started thinking about like, well, why would he be a mascot? And I think it's that there's there's this level of performance that's going on, you know, in everything. It's his empathy, it's his humor, it's him being like the fixer for the teams that he's on. And that's like emotionally and even mechanically. It feels like this constant sort of like, what can I do and what do I need to do for them to accept me and keep me around? I think Anna, you mentioned like respectability politics. And I thought about like the the Du Bois, the talented 10th idea of like, you know, that you have to be exceptional if you are a part of this minority. And he's like this minority or this other within a group of others, you know, he is other even to them. And so he has like that kind of double burden of that going on. Um, And this is, this is the part where I feel like I might be getting a little out there and I am recognizing I'm doing way more heavy lifting than like those four panels are probably doing. But even the fact that Kurt is aware of how sort of hyper visible he is, in his group identities that he also manages to like disappear. He disappears in shadows. He disappears through teleportation. And I think when Anna was talking about Davis's, you know, the physicality of Nightcrawler and he, you know, he's always crouching. He has this like very unusual posture. Even that is sort of 
can be thought of as like he's making himself smaller and less visible when he does that. And so when he's visible, he has to be visible in this idealized way of being safe and caring and useful that feels very much a part of being being alien, being other, being a part of a minority group in a way that I never really thought of the character before. Yeah, I mean, a huge part of my sort of affection for the character has to do with the performative nature of his identity. And again, it's not something that the character himself is super reflective about a lot of the time. But I mean, the way that Davis draws him as a performer, we've talked about before, right? And there's a lot of poses that he does in this issue where, you know, he's like hand on his hip, directing traffic like a conductor. And the way that he presents himself as a performer, I mean, you think back to the character's backstory and he's like a performer in the circus. That's how we find acceptance he keeps himself out of the freak show by being beautiful on the trapeze and that is what he has to continue doing sort of within the x-men i mean he's the x-men character that he joins the team and has to convince other members of the team like kitty pride and members of the new mutants not to be afraid of him and like that's messed up i again i don't want to go too far on the racialized thing because i think overclaiming that with this character can be really dangerous because of the character being represented as white and it become become very appropriative if we go too far with that reading and especially I don't want to go too far with it as, as a white person who likes this character because I think that's very dangerous. But like you brought up the talented 10th thing and it's like Kurt is the one member of the X-Men that should be a member of the Morlocks but gets to be with the X-Men because he's just that exceptional. And, you know, that gets brought up when, you know, they have the interaction with the Morlocks and Callisto's like, you should be one of us. And he's like, no, I fight really hard to be judged by my deeds and everything. And you're like, yeah, he has to be so much better than everybody else just to be kept out of the sewers. Which becomes a very white reading on otherism uh, 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 a very white liberal reading on otherism which is to say so yes it is not very like kurt to dwell on his own on his own difference so much as to kind of no i worked hard to not be this way to not be thought of as just this but then that becomes the idea of exceptionalism it becomes the idea of barack obama's okay because he doesn't talk like one of them you know or christopher maverick is right like yeah it's like yeah sure i talk like someone who's got 80 college degrees because i do But but that's not what makes me smart enough for polite society, but it can easily be viewed that way. And what's odd about it is, I mean, I don't dwell on it, but I am aware of it. And I'm never quite sure that the Kurt character is aware of it, or at least I'm usually not. Here he starts to be. And that's why maybe that's why it bothers me, because he starts to be to show awareness and then he shoves it down in in a way that like I want to say, no, deal, no, deal with it. That said, maybe Alan Davis, the the white man who at this point has written seven comics in his life is not the right person <laughs> i mean again i'm like i, I want to be fair i really like what he's doing in, the, in his run in excalibur but this is a man learning to write comic books on the job i, I don't want to say i want to grade him on a curve but i kind of want to grade him on a curve here <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I almost want to go to the place of like Kurt having a type of white privilege because I do think that that's built into the character. And there was a thing that I think about a lot from a book that I talk about way too much, which is um, Marjorie Liu's X-Men novel, Dark Mirror, which involves, it's a body swapping story. And in that story, Kurt is swapped for a black person and has to kind of deal with that. And there were some interesting things in that novel I thought about him realizing that although he has a certain type of difference, he also has a certain type of privilege and some of the intersectionality there body swap stories are always super complicated and potentially Mm -hmm. minefield problematic but 
seeing him reflect on that in that story was something we've never had in a comic and I really appreciated it on that level so I totally take your point Mav that this is like referencing those things but never really dealing with them which is really dissatisfying because we're bringing so much to this to make it work that's my problem with it yeah that is a perfect encapsulation of why I was like "Eh, it's not really Kirk's story because for me a massive amount of Kirk development was three issues ago when he had his fight with Brian and they have that conversation like that that felt like a lot well no I'm not saying I I I don't (laughs) like the decision I don't like the decision no, no, that, that, that he made. I the, like I and I said that on that episode, I believe. Mm-hmm. I don't like the decisions that Davis made there. That's not where I wanted the character to go. However, Christopher Maverick is not the writer of Excalibur. Alan Davis was, and as the writer, I felt like he made a definitive statement where he said, "Here's storyline progression that makes sense for what I want to do," and that felt like a moment to me. Well, um, there's I also going to be some more next issue. Or yeah, I yes, mean, it, it's issue. funny because I think what I like about this scene so much is like him recognizing his desire to be liked and the ways that that has impacted him and mm-hmm. i wish that he had that recognition in his relationships with women and that was <laughs> is what i think was missing from like the yes. conversation he has with mm-hmm. brian because do you like megan or do you like being liked by megan and how much is this extending from right. all of these hang-ups that you have like understandable hang-ups that you have about your appearance and your acceptance and that was not included in that brian conversation and that's why i like this conversation better well or what we said on that episode if i remember or this correctly, isn't a conversation this is just thought bubbles but yeah right well we acknowledged that i think all of us did on that episode that we thought kurt was lying quite possibly yeah, even to himself <laughs> right shit, and yeah. i'm okay with kurt deluding himself or any character i shouldn't say kurt i'm okay with a character addressing something and and having an artificial thought of well that's not me i'm better than this right like if kurt were of course they didn't leave me behind because i'm different why would i even think that you know like if he were somehow addressing the issue and not sidestepping it even if he were addressing it to be wrong that would fix it for me does mm-hmm. that make sense yeah it's a yeah. weird caveat but i know but like but that's like where i'm uneasy with it i was gonna say i, I like it as kind of a continuation again of the, the formerly failed leadership role to me when, when kurt expresses that doubt that that mascot perspective um there's a lot of narrative tension in that because that kind of reads like um him starting to spiral uh, mm-hmm. as we saw in the panic attack x-men issue where he becomes just just too in his own head and starts to question himself and maybe even fabricate um concerns that aren't really concerns so having that mm-hmm. surface here just for a moment and then have him say no no i'm not gonna worry about that right now um i, I think you can read that as like delusion but you could also read it as growth uh, understanding that there is this, this spiral i'm falling into i'm more mature now i'm wiser i'm i'm smarter no i'm not gonna do this now and i think maybe that's how he's able to succeed in this issue where he failed as a leader in x And just the visualization of that there, you know, the first panel, we have him kind of starting to disassociate from the scene you know we have his darkened face we have sort of the chaos going on around him and he's isolated within that chaos and then in the next panel we see like the focus on his like closed eyes you know pained expression and then him switching to you know his classic confident nightcrawler smile in the next panel like I agree that it's really quick but I really like that reading of it Andrew because I think that that is a lot of what I'm bringing to it too just having that deep familiarity with with that previous leadership stint well and I also think it's it is really quick but i think it's also interestingly like just as performative but performative in a like fake it fake it till you make it kind of way because like 
I mean, I know like um, in the notes, you had the question about like, you know, what makes Kurt a good leader in this particular comic? And my first response was actually like, is he really though? Because like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he winds up being effective. He manages to get the tech net from being this collection of super chaotic infighting beings and they execute a strategy and they work together. But first we don't really get to see how he accomplishes this other than yeah, giving yeah. them costumes. Um, and second, he kind of does it by performing and he's, he's doing this even earlier performing as professor X. Like he's yes. authoritative. He's cold. He's like constantly sort of critical. Of he's mean to numbers. Yeah. Man. yeah. 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 And so it's like him performing what he believes is a good leader. And yes. it could easily be like <laughs> yeah, a response yeah. to his earlier leadership, which is like, oh, I was way too in my head about shit then. So I need to like who's a leader that I can look at who's not like that. Like, yeah, I like I can't look at Storm because Storm <laughs> went through her sort of like introspection and ended up being a great leader. I can't look at Scott because however great a leader Scott can be, he's also a mess. Professor X is the one who just projects confidence and like you know, is authoritative. So it makes sense that that's the person he would look to as a model of like, maybe I need to be more like this with these group of people. And he even kind of alludes to that a few times. Abusive. Like, yeah. Like, I think <laughs> he even says like, Rex, yes. yeah, he even sympathizes and says like, you know, like now I sympathize with like how Professor Xavier had to deal with us when we started. And it's like, well, poorly. Um, he dealt with <laughs> <Yeah>. you poorly. <laughs> But somehow it works. It's it's almost like the leadership version of like, you know, we talked about the last episode I was on. How does Kurt rescue Rachel from the spell? He throws her into a thing and it a explodes fire. in a fire and it explodes in a way that is helpful. That's essentially his leadership is like, I'm going to do the worst possible thing and it'll work. Okay, like, sure. I just like, it's that reckless confidence of Nightcrawler, though, that I think is super charming because, yeah. and as much as I agree with the like mirroring Professor X thing, and I think that that's very deliberate and we're going to come back to that when he has a struggle with how leadership is changing him. That's going to be something we'll talk about um, some issues from now. But the fact that he knows that part of the secret to being a successful team is knowing the performative aspects of teamwork and one of the performative aspects is dressing appropriately and that's like a wonderful <laughs> little nightcrawler thing he's like well of course we need to put on the right clothes and then Mine. we're going to be able to do my this clothes. and specifically my clothes <laughs> which like, <laughs> sure that's egotistical but it's amazing it's just so amazing it, it, it also makes sense as the character who has changed his costume the least probably in the x-men <laughs> of like well this costume has been working for me so i'm not going to mess with it <laughs> and maybe it'll work for everybody else if I just put them all in it too. So good. They're actually more Nightcrawler than Nightcrawler because they all have the end belt. I know, <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Which, which is just, I, I mean, I, I made a joke about it in my intro, and and I've read it twice. I don't believe they ever actually call them the end men. It's on the cover, and Anna said that during the recap. But I don't believe there's any panel where end men is used, or even an acknowledgement that it's a nightcrawler costume. He says, "I'm going to give you uniforms," and then they're all dressed like him, and that's it's not talked about. <laughs> just so many questions about where the uniforms came from, and the conversations about how they were going to fit these unusual bodies and everything. There's just like a, a fanfic waiting to happen. Band. I know. <laughs> well, <laughs> and we were completely robbed of Kurt just like having to yell like to me, my end men, because he's not telepathic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> Oddly enough, <laughs> Professor X never says that. That's, that's like a that's like a video game thing. It's not like a comic yeah. thing. <laughs> totally canon for me. Video game. Yeah, I know. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not. Well, but but find it. Yeah. <laughs> I think we were very robbed of of Kurt designing everybody's costumes and having very specific ideas for how they should look. I want to read that scene. Um. Okay. We've talked about Kurt a lot. I could spend the whole issue talking about those three panels because I just like again. I think that they're so important. But let's talk about the Brian and Linda stuff, which is also really important. And you have two of you have argued that this is sort of the meat of the issue. So let's talk about that a little bit. So what is important about this for Brian? You know, what are we learning about Brian? I mean, Andrew already brought up that it's a redemption for Brian, and we can come back to that idea. But I'll send it to you, Matt, guest privilege as usual. Why do you think some of these scenes are important for Brian, if you think that they are important for Brian? For me, it's less about the specific scenes and more about, I guess, like in world, this is Brian having time on his own and being among people that he thinks of as his equals because I think he doesn't always think of Excalibur as his equals because you know Megan is his girlfriend but she's also he's paternalistic towards him or towards her Kitty is a teenager like he views them from a position of being above them which you know from like a class thing the Captain Britain Corps they're all him basically you know so he has to view them that way and that gives him I think the space or the opportunity to be reflective rather than just self-absorbed and reactive if that distinction makes sense like he's able to think about like and and he's able to voice like why do i have problems with magic why do i have problems with this whole mysticism like oh this is why like my suit getting blown up and me just putting on whatever random thing i found maybe wasn't a good idea like he has the time to think because he's not so concerned with feeling like he has to take care of all of the other characters it's that idea of like you know if you ask anyone in excalibur who the leader is brian's probably the only one who would have said me despite the fact that that's so obviously not true but he thinks that he is and so he agonizes in the way that like a maybe that he thinks a leader should yeah does that resonate with you andrew yeah i think so um maybe just to um hone that into like a specific scene that i think is Mm -hmm. is really key to brian's redemption in this issue um that's the briefly mentioned of linda says you know do you want to go back or something like that and he says no um and that's that's tragic in the context of Brian. Brian mm-hmm. fucking hates Otherworld. He, he hates everything to do with those people with the magic. He likes Linda. That's mm-hmm. about it. Uh, and the idea that he doesn't want to go back to the lighthouse because he has this this tremendous sense of guilt and shame and pain. And he'll hang out in this like horrible place for him. I, I think that's an obvious sort of attempt on Davis's part to make Brian sympathetic uh, and, and to make the reader feel bad for a character that we've not been trained to feel bad for for a very, very long time. Yeah, and there's so much tragedy to this entire section of of the scenes with Linda, you know, a lot of panels of Brian being small and the large dark like landscape looking up at the starlit citadel and, you know, panels like that drawing a scene like that with a character is just like textbook, we're going to identify with that character and their smallness in the landscape and, and empathize with their struggle. So he's doing a lot visually here. I think to really yeah. sell this like these scenes with Brian and Linda are just like beautiful they are otherworldly mm-hmm. and he he really achieves that yes. in these scenes <laughs> they, for me in particular it's the conversation under the starscape when they're looking at the uh, yeah. matrix in the sky like, like that's just like a other world and like this is the guy literally here's the energy matrix here's where all your power comes from and it is it's a Van Gogh it is yes and it's also making Brian 
majestic in a way because so the next yeah, the yeah. next page page 16 um the first panel he's standing in his hero pose and mm -hmm. this is the most heroic brian has been in 43 issues and 44 issues basically since no i guess 45 because storage drawn isn't actually in issue zero so since that first issue where he gets to like you know in the story in the you know the the team forming embrace since then he's been our buffoon for most of the time like there's a there's a lot of well, i guess not all the time there are some writers who actually thought brian was more heroic than he was <laughs> but most but in most of the stories it's a lot of him screwing up this is going to be addressed a lot next issue um yeah. i don't think davis wants brian to be the leader of excalibur in fact i know he doesn't because i know it's going to happen but i think he doesn't want brian to be i don't know that it's fair to say claremont wanted him to be the villain but Claremont wanted him to be the foil in a way that Davis doesn't want him to be. Davis is allowing Brian to score some protagonist point. This is why I think it's Brian's story. Um, this issue particularly and the little bit next issue is what you need. It's the redemption that you need. You need to be on board with what happens to Brian or the Alan Davis run of Excalibur is not going to be very fun for you because he's not the same character that he has been. And that matters. And I think it's well done. Typically, when there's a transformation like this, and I've done it on this show, I can be kind of critical of it because I'm like, this, is, this wasn't earned. This comes out of nowhere. Last episode, I talked about how I didn't, I think it was last episode, where I talked about I didn't like where, where Rachel's just all of a sudden like, yeah, I'm going to turn off the phoenix force like i understand why she makes that decision especially since i know where it's going but it just seemed super convenient for me it seemed like she was doing it not because of a character reason but because davis was giving her a character reason because he needed the plot to go there i don't feel that way with brian even though it's explicitly that right he wants to tell this story about brian and he needs brian not to be a buffoon in order to tell that story but i felt it feels earned because of the work that's done in this issue and next issue. Well, maybe there's more stuff we could say about the Brian thing, but just because you brought up the Megan and Rachel thing, that segues so nicely into mm -hmm. talking about the exchange that they have here because we get a lot of expansion on yes. Rachel's reasons for doing that. Much um, better than last issue. Yeah. Much yeah. better. <laughs> it's a very deliberate expansion mm -hmm. too. And I'm going to, again, read some of it because I think it matters. So we have the conversation between um, Megan and Rachel. And I want to talk about Megan getting angry too which i think is really important but and rachel is reflecting on why she decided to turn off the phoenix force so she says i could sense the genuine warmth of their emotions when we met it shocked me and i suddenly realized i've met so few ordinary people i had started to regard them as part of an anonymous crowd of victims to be saved then i became conscious of the destructive potential at my fingertips of my psychic armor and the defensive probes that violate the minds of all around me so i willed the phoenix force to be dormant and then we have her talking about her memories repairing themselves and I mean, you know, I'm sure all of our listeners have read the issue, but the visualization of this is just, <laughs> just really, really, really beautiful. We have the tree shadows across Megan or across Rachel's face, rather, um, imitating her hound tattoos. And then in that particular panel with that, with most of the dialogue I read there, we have that contrasted with a pale yellow background and her, you know, touching flowers that are sort of disintegrating in her hands. Just really, 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 really beautiful. So, yeah, I mean, does this make you feel a little bit better about it, yes, some seventy years of Marvel comics. This is some of the best writing ever for that for, for that speech. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. I love team books. I'm a big team book fan. The conceit of a team uh, of of a good team book. Um, I shouldn't say 
all team books because some team books are Justice League. Justice League, this is their job, right? My favorite team books are Excalibur. My favorite team books are the Teen Titans, the X-Men, the New Mutants especially. We talked about Generation X, Young Justice. What works in these stories are these are books about friends who become family whose job it is to save the world as opposed to the Justice League, which is just, you know, and we're this is a job we see each other we're work friends batman and green lantern don't like each other they're work friends teams like the teen titans teams like excalibur excalibur formed because these were the people who didn't die and they were you know <laughs> they were what was left and like they were just like oh, i guess we're gonna go save the world i guess you know but over the course of 45 issues i feel like they've become friends and family and i love that there's a road trip here between megan and rachel because they're the ones who least have a reason to be with each other of the yeah, entire team yeah. so this is building a relationship between these two women which i love and i get to know them and i get to know who they are to each other and i love that and rachel makes it a very important statement that means something to me as a reader for all team books ever and she says i forgot that regular people exist <laughs> like i don't have friends who are human i don't have friends who aren't superheroes and not only does she not have friends who aren't superheroes like because of excalibur rachel is in her life 20 years old 22 rachel doesn't know anybody since she was a baby like in her future world she doesn't know anybody who's I mean, she has a future friends who aren't mutants but what you know spider-man you know she doesn't know people who are who are normies like it's just not something that she does so the fact that she acknowledges that most of the people in her life who aren't mutants who aren't x-men are victims to be saved right like even during the x-men days of you know like claremont run where he has humans you have stevie and eventually tom and sharon you know you have people regular humans who are hanging out at the x-mansion they're still i think oh i think it's the shadow king or somebody at one point calls moira taggart mutant by association or something like that because you know they're essentially part of they're not really human and i love this acknowledgement that there are regular people there's a world of humanity out there and that's what Rachel wants to associate with. And I think that's so important in books about literal gods walking amongst the earth beyond the capacity of caring of human of humanity. Because if we are to believe that humans fear mutants, the reason they fear mutants is because mutants are gods walking among men who are beyond our normal concerns and we should fear them. Well, Rachel is acknowledging that they have a point. And that means something. I, I was thinking about it, too. I mean, I love that reading of it, but I was thinking about it, too. And I wanted to ask Andrew, like, does this address any of the concerns that you brought up back when we talked about, ooh, I think, Excalibur 35 or 6, the heartbreaker one with despair. And you talked mm. in that episode about how upsetting and dissatisfying it is that Rachel never gets help that she never moves forward, that we just keep re-traumatizing Rachel and we never see sort of growth beyond that trauma. And we talked about different ways that you can read that, you know, maybe that's an accurate representation of some people's experiences of trauma, but it also can have quite a negative connotation you talked about in that episode in terms of just the fact that she never does get help and that can suggest that getting help is a weakness. And that is part of the problematic way that the superhero genre often deals with disability, that it's something to be gotten over. Since I mean, is this scene sort of helping deal with that at all to you? Yeah, I think so. I, I think, I mean, we're talking about a literal pilgrimage, right? Yeah. Um, she, she's on this this journey of self-discovery. She is, she is trying to make herself vulnerable to the world. She's trying mm -hmm. to understand what it is that she fights for. So all these things speak to mental health. Again, I would greatly prefer she goes to see uh, a licensed psychiatrist. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Because <laughs> that would be a great message. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I think 
this also speaks to the broader phoenix continuity right the idea that the phoenix if it is not grounded in human compassion you lose it and you spiral uh, and i think it's again that that's sort of a testimony to rachel as phoenix 2.0 the one who figured it out uh so her understanding humankind and understanding you know the danger of the phoenix and its capacity to distance her from humankind here rendered metaphorically through you know supernatural mojo um i i think that adds something to that story as well and that also ties into her journey of self-discovery so so i like all of it for that I just wanted to say something about just how heroic this choice is that she makes here too because of the nature of her trauma like to open herself up and make herself vulnerable is a tremendous act of heroism and yeah. it's important to kind of understand that in the context of this character because I, I'll be honest like Rachel hasn't been a character that I super identified with the same way that a lot of people did but throughout this storyline in particular I really am feeling that at more than at any other time in the character's history like including the present comics just this storyline in particular has really been hooking me in terms of the conflicts that structure this character and the nature of her heroism and we haven't had your thoughts about this scene matt so i should give you a chance did this scene sort of resonate with you as much as it resonated with us yeah completely and i mean i agree with everything that all three of you have said like these two pages are my favorite two pages in this issue for a number of reasons you have megan standing up for herself but still also being caring and empathetic you have rachel actually being like self-aware and reflective and at least trying to address her trauma and do something about it rather than just closing off um so you have like both of these characters growing in these like sort of important ways she's searching for connection that's more than just like kitty and kurt and i think the thing that's most important for me or like stood out is she's doing it alongside the person that she previously pushed away or dismissed and like just looking through these two pages every panel other than when she's at her sort of most introspective, you know, the, the sort of like amazing like panel at the top and she's looking at the flower. Mm -hmm. Every other panel, it's her and Megan in the panel in together. In the same panel, yep, yep. Yeah, um, and even like, you know, mirroring each other in certain poses, like, you know, the, the third panel on the first of those two pages, they're from a, like, it's like a medium straight on shot. They're not in the same position, but they it's almost like they're looking into mirrors at each other. And even the panel in the corner, I know you mentioned the shadows on the next page that sort of you know echo her like hound tattoos i think even on the previous page you know she's talking about in the conversation how fragmented her memories are yeah, yeah. and that megan's are fragmented in a similar way and she in that in this panel she says it's like having two complicated jigsaws mixed together and her face is essentially just sort of like cut up into like these pieces with the shadows mm -hmm. And it's almost her entire face, and it's a little bit of Megan's. And even that seems to be commenting on the, like, Megan has this too, just not in the same way and not to this, for the same reasons that Rachel does. Like, it's much more traumatic a response for Rachel. And some of this is like, and I say this kind of risking being overly critical of Claremont, which I think I might have, maybe was earlier too. Along with, like, the Brian stuff, this feels like Davis sort of taking back ownership of his character, like, Megan, and sort of treating her more like a, like an actual character or a person, yeah. rather than sort of, I think Claremont could at times, because he's juggling so many things and, you know, shifting his focus a lot, you know, he would write her sort of as a type a lot of times of, like, oh, she's the empathic one, she's the vulnerable one, she's the childlike one, because that's what he had room for in the story for her. I think Dave, this is Davis, and I'm not super familiar with his Captain Britain stuff, but I think this is Davis 
kind of doing the same thing that he was doing with Captain Britain in this issue and these issues is, no, this is a character with like interiority and she is an actual person and, you know, explicitly having her say, like, I'm not stupid and I'm not a simple minded child just because everyone treats me that way. That almost feels like maybe some unintentional shade being yeah, thrown at yeah, like how the character's yeah. been portrayed in the previous issues. I really like it in a gender sense too. There can be a disavowal of femininity that happens when you're very focused on trying to be a strong woman. And I can see that a lot in Rachel, you know, the disavowal of what she perceives as a type of woman in Megan. And for them to have sort of this moment of reckoning where Megan is like, you're perceiving me that way, which is sexist. And Mm. if you're buying into that, then you're buying into, you know, sexist ideals of what being powerful means. And for Rachel to resist that and for them to be able to understand that they're both doing their own sort of versions of either femininity or femaleness, I think we could argue about which term actually applies here because it very much depends on Rachel's identity, which is very complicated. But yeah, I really liked that about it. I think that's part of where I'm coming at with this being one of the moments where I've identified with both of these characters more than I have in the past because I find that a very convincing conflict. And they're sort of converging too. It's like that conversation between the two of them is Megan becoming stronger than we've seen her before or at least like showing how strong she actually is. And it's Rachel Rachel being more sensitive and more yes, responsive yes. and not being yeah. closed off and being more vulnerable. So it's like, it's kind of showing the, yeah, it's like strength and vulnerability are both good things, you know, and maybe Megan needs a little more of the strength and she need, Rachel needs a little more of the vulnerability. Well, and that vulnerability can be strength because that was sort mm-hmm. of what I said earlier about this is such a heroic moment for Rachel because allowing herself to be vulnerable is just unbelievably heroic for this character and everything that she's been through. Which, you know, is another wonderful way that we can read gender into it, right? Because that's so much of the essence that we talked about with Megan as the character and so many powerful things that she can do in terms of allowing us to rethink abjected feminized traits of, of, of sort of empathy and vulnerability and sort of elevate those as powerful. And in a sense, that's what we see happening here in the exchange between Rachel and Megan. Like, I think it's really important that Rachel is learning from Megan in the same way that Megan is learning from Rachel. And that sort of play of different ways of being powerful and the ways that that intersects with gender is actually really, really well done. Like, I'm going to have some criticisms about gendered aspects of Megan in future issues, but in terms of this issue right here and these two pages, I think it's really well done. Um, Maybe we should move to final thoughts. Um, Did we have thoughts about Micromax, who we still haven't talked about on the podcast? No, 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 no. This is a... I was was like, I've I've been silently hoping it's like, can the new joke on the show just be that we just never actually, you know, Micromax is the apologies to Matt Damon. We've run out of time, <laughs> For, um, which is a Jimmy Kimmel re- reference. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, we'll get to him. <laughs> I will say, well, here, here's yeah, my okay. final thought. Uh, currently in, in real time, I think this is still going on as this episode drops. You can vote in Marvel's Twitter poll to pick the next member of the X-Men in the current modern continuity and Micromax is an option and I'm pretty sure that he's an option because they have decided who they want to win and they there's some ringers and there's some goats in in this poll everybody go vote for Micromax just go do it make them write a book with Micromax I dare you <laughs> I I believe that the voting is over and he did finish last um <laughs> <sighs> 
can confirm. <laughs> I voted. I actually did vote for him when I saw did that. You? I was like, yes, I did. Uh, when when I, and I'm not even a Micromax fan, but I saw that and I was like, no, if you're going to do this, then fine. Then you have to. I want Micromax to be in your book, and I want to force you to let's make him leader. Yeah, <laughs> you brought this on yourself. Oh well, it didn't happen. Um, but well, yeah, we don't have time to talk about Micromax. Well, Matt, did you want to say anything about Micromax? I mean, we can say a couple of brief things about why he's in this book. You know he's in this book why like to be to give them sort of a relationship with the cops and that antagonistic angle like i mean what is his kind of purpose here maybe this, this is just off the top of my head maybe he's davis's replacement for brian as the like the foil yeah, and the buffoon yeah. who's like self-absorbed of like oh you think brian was bad look at this guy yeah <laughs> That seems very plausible to me, actually, Matt. That seems to make like a lot of sense to me. Before I reread this issue, I would have completely forgotten that character even existed. You could have said like, <laughs> oh, do you remember Micromax in Marvel? And I would have been like, that's not a thing. Like, there's no way. I kind of like the way he comes in by calling Ray Bimbo. Because as a <laughs> yeah. reader who loves Ray, your immediate reaction is like, you mother... Like, you just instantly <laughs> so much. And it's perfect for establishing him as a tool really, really quickly. He like kicks Lockheed on the way in. Like, <laughs> yeah. I feel like any any discussion of Micromax is just time taken away from talking about Kylan. And you know, I know, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did Kylan as my write-in candidate for the Comics XF newsletter for the for the oh, new X Men team. So. <laughs> anyway andrew did you have any final thoughts for us um i like the scene with saturnine i, I think yeah it's we didn't talk about her it, yeah. as an enigmatic character mm -hmm. you know what i mean she comes in she's got all this power but she's also um trapped within a power hierarchy herself she shows possible affection towards brian they get a little bit of a, a moment uh but then also says you know i hate you and wanders off like that's a that's a, that's a good character dynamic that we're sort of reestablishing there yeah, absolutely. Like, that's another one of those things where it's just like two pages in this issue, but it's a really important two pages in terms of the yeah. density of character work that it's performing for both of them there. Um, I don't know what my final thought is. I mean, we talked all about so much of the Nightcrawler stuff already, so maybe I won't belabor it further. But yeah, I just, there's just so many wonderful individual panels in here with him sort of training the tech net and some physical comedy. But one of my favorite ones that we didn't talk about was like that opening scene with, oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> we get the half splash with the Nightcrawler's tech net title. Cast. And yeah, and like Kurt on one foot with the cast sort of pointing at mm -hmm. them to go do the thing and some great sort of pratfall comedy moments on the bottom half of the page. But I love the one at the end of that page so the final panel on page three where it's like kurt and the cast with thug and scatterbrain and nightcrawler it figures <laughs> just there's just something so perfect and so funny about that scene i'm just like nightcrawler it figures it's like look at all this chaos he's bringing in with him and he's at the center of it and it does figure that that would be nightcrawler that's just a wonderful panel to me how does Kurt get in in and out of a body stocking cat suit when he has a cast on? This is a good question. And we did see, well, sorry, it's in a future issue. We will see him changing into it while yeah, wearing yeah, the yeah. cast and yet not really established yeah, yeah. how he's doing that. My no prize answer is he teleports well, somehow well, <laughs> into and would, out of it. That <laughs> would be better, except for she's right. We, we, we do know he puts it on somehow. I don't get it. <laughs> I mean, I've read a fan fiction where he's able to do that with his clothes, but, you know. And while we've seen it in comics, actually, that happens in the 85 Nightcrawler series, his costume gets teleported off. Anyway, that will distract me um, from talking about what we need to talk about, which is Matt's <laughs> final thoughts, which are probably not related to Nightcrawler's teleportation costume dynamics. So what did you have?
up for us, Matt? Um, I have two sort of quick ones. One is like just a one line. I'm like, I know this is a carryover from the issue before. I'm just really not okay with like Nazi Captain Britain just hanging out with the rest of the <laughs> Captain Britain Corps. Like, have some yeah. quality control and standards of like, we get it. He's yeah. a Captain Britain, but maybe the point at which you go full Nazi, you should just not invite him to the meetings and <laughs> put him in charge of stuff. Like, I was forgot that he was there. And then there's the fight scene at the beginning. And I'm just like, oh, wait, oh, yeah, he's just part of them. They just look the other way, which could be some commentary on, I don't know, like privilege or something, but. It's you a haven't heard, yeah we talk we talk about that a lot it's, okay it's a thing. Um, <laughs> yeah we, then, we had a good conversation about that sort of in regards to sort of the imperial identity of the captain britain corps in the last mm-hmm. episode but it is going to be a problem for me definitely in some future issues like say the wedding issue where he shows up so but though we're not going to be there for a while so but yeah definitely the fact that he's there is quite an mm-hmm. indictment of the captain britain corps and then my other one just because i know we didn't get a chance to talk about it too much and it's really real quick is just the the sort of paternalism that i saw you see it in nightcrawler towards the tech net like you know it's him like i said performing this like authoritative figure and explicitly sort of performing professor x the most paternalistic of the like x-men leaders you see it with rachel toward megan and megan calls around on it immediately but even in like the other world stuff with brian you see it i think most explicitly it's referred to kind of obliquely of like roma and merlin and how you know roma seems to be becoming like Mm. Merlin and her father and feeling the need to do that. And so I feel like that's this thread that sort of, it might just be sort of a window dressing sort of theme that Davis is like sort of honestly kind of nimbly working into all three of them but not necessarily devoting a ton of time to. But I like I found that really interesting as a way to sort of like make it feel like a coherent issue rather than just like, we're here, we're here, we're here. And all three of these stories are doing different things with different characters. I love that. Yeah, because I've had that complaint about some of the issues in this run that the various stories didn't tie together as well as they might. Because you know how that works in a sitcom, right? Where there's the A plot and the B plot. And I really hate when they're not related at all. They should be thematically related. That's better. And I think you're absolutely right that that's a great, <laughs> way that these stories are thematically related here um and yes we will certainly be revisiting uh the paternalisticness of nightcrawler's heroism and how that ends up affecting him psychologically as a character we're going to come back to that um i just wanted to do in closing a very brief segment of a letter from the sword strokes letters page which is about nightcrawler and i'm obviously choosing it for that reason um this is from helen krumenacher and I'm just going to read part of her letter. Kurt is the epitome of the hero I've always cheered for. Hey, I can fence and ballroom dance. If he ever gets bored, ship him to California. I'm a brunette and I'm cute. Anyone interested in a Nightcrawler fan club, by the way? Gotta spotlight the Kurt Thirst letters when I can. I'm just wondering who gets more of those, Nightcrawler or Kitty in the Excalibur letter columns? I have to admit it's Kitty, but um, okay. <laughs> when there's Kurt ones, they stand out to me. So they seem like there are more than there are. The spotlight it more on this show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> that is your job. You're his unofficial PR manager. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My king, I couldn't do it. Excalibur cannot be lost. Other men do as I command. One day, the king will come. And the sword will rise again. 
So we will wrap things up there. Matt, thank you so, so, so very much for joining us. Um, You were able to jump in pretty last minute on this one and the conversation was amazing and we're so grateful to have someone with so many smart and eloquent things to say on our speed dial. Um, Before we put this episode to bed, we need you to remind our lovely listeners of all the fabulous things you get up to. Assuming you want people to find you online, where can they find you? And what amazing work of yours or projects or anything else would you like them to check out? Well, thank you for all of that. But also the place I can most easily be found is on Twitter. Uh, It's at a boy called Monk. Most of the time, you can find me in the replies to other tweets um, because I don't often <laughs> post. I don't often post like my own tweets, but I regularly will jump into conversations where I feel welcome to jump into them. Um, I try not to just like leap in with my opinion everywhere. I'm also hoping to finally start the podcast I've been talking about. I think since like immediately after I was on here last time in the next few months, but I absolutely positively have to finish my prospectus before that or my wonderful dissertation director might actually kill me um (laughs) other than that like teaching i'm teaching and (laughs) the rest of my time is spent with my dog and avoiding work and that's about it i haven't been like super productive in terms of like keeping up the blogs that i've written for and stuff like that it's been a bit of a lull so well, I feel you. And you're here doing the podcast with us. And we're, we're very, very grateful. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Next, in one week's time, we will be discussing Excalibur 46, Colin the Barbarian. That's right. Colin. Colin McKay. He who is responsible for the name of this podcast truly a momentous occasion with which we will celebrate with all the pomp and circumstance that it deserves. But before we get to Colin, we've got something else fun planned for you this week, which is our tweet storm about this particular issue, Excalibur number 45. Basically, what's going to happen is starting Tuesday, January 25th at 8am Eastern Time, we're going to tweet every panel of this issue, accompanied by 250 character analysis of each panel, written by you, our listeners. We've got 40 people writing for this thing, uh, talking about 121 panels, and I'm going to try to tweet, set it up to tweet one panel every five minutes, which is going to take us 10 hours to get through the whole issue. Um, (laughs) A huge and hearty thank you to everyone who reached out to participate. Assuming it all goes off without a hitch, it's going to be a fun day. But even if it doesn't, I'll follow Nightcrawler's example and try to roll with the punches. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another inspiring conversation. Thank you, Matt, for leading us through it. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for a truly epic theme song. Play us out. Thank you.